that first paragraph says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol, when I put alcohol in my body, on these chronic alcoholics, is the manifestation of an allergy. The manifestation of that allergy is a phenomenon of craving, and it's limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Okay? If it never occurs in the average drinker, never, and it's ever occurred in me, I'm not them. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA Deep in the heart of Texas on this here episode number 280-280. That was the voice of Mr. Joe Hawk that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this here episode is being brought to you by Russell and Laura and Bradley. And what you may ask did Russell and Laura Bradley do to deserve such a mention? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Russell and Laura and Bradley, for your contribution. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. All right, so just so everybody knows, I'm getting uh, way ahead on releasing this. And the only reason I mention that is because I'm going to take some time off next weekend. I'm not going to be recording. And that means I won't be going through the listener feedback and getting that all out either. So there's going to be no listener feedback on the end of this. And that may be music to the ears of some of you, even though you can just stop listening at that point. But uh, I'm not going to have any listener feedback today. We're just going to bring you Mr. Joe Hawk, and then I will be back uh, soon enough with the listener feedback. We'll be back hopefully next week. So this is Mr. Joe Hawk, and I recently ran across Joe Hawk because, and by the way, I'm using his last name because he has gone on to the great big meeting in the sky, and I recently came across Joe Hawk because I was uh, interviewing uh, another friend. His name is Chris S. We haven't released his episode yet, but it'll be coming up soon. And he talked about Joe Hawk. So I went on the old interweb and started searching around for Joe Hawk and I found him and I was just uh, fascinated by him. He is 
is kind of a a Joe and Charlie type of speaker, um, and uh, he does a great job of walking uh, walking us through the Big Book. And this was recorded in. 1987 at the Salvation Army over a 12-week period in Santa Monica, California. Uh, Some of you out there, I'm sure, would have heard of this before, but I'd be interested to see what you think. I'd love to hear your feedback. I'm a John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Feel free to reach out to me uh, with any feedback about Joe or any of the other speakers or, hey, anything else that's on your mind. And uh, one quick uh, little promo, I guess is what you would call this. If you're not part of the super secret Facebook group and you would like to be part of that group, go to our website, uh, or actually no, don't go to our website. You can go there and you can get there, but the easy way to get there is go to Facebook and search up sober speak secret group and ask for admission into the group and we will get you on in. Also, if you're not following us on Instagram, it's at, at sober speak, all one word. And that's the exact same thing for uh, our Pinterest as well. We're actually on there. Uh, if you want to follow us there on Pinterest. So enough of that stuff. Now on to Mr. Joe Hawk. Enjoy Joe Hawk. And once again, remember, there'll be no listener feedback at the end of this episode, but we will get you caught up, I'm sure, in the near future. God bless. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Before my exposure to this book, I uh, sat around in meetings for about four and a half months. I left my, my tent treatment center and I left with a little different feeling than I had left with the other nine times and when I left the penitentiary. Uh, I was scared. I wasn't cocky. I usually left treatment or the penitentiary or jail or whenever I would try again. I usually kind of started off cocky like this time I really got a shot. And this time I can make it. And uh, I didn't feel that way this time. I kind of felt like uh, I didn't have much of a chance unless something really happened here. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Because I think I s- experienced uh, the first step to a certain degree before I really started to hear about it, before I really started to look at it. And I sat around in meetings, and I made some friends, and circumstances got a little better, and the heat was off, and uh, I had a little period of time where I felt like I was on a pink cloud, and I was getting some answers, and um, that didn't last long for me. And I think if when you look around this program, it, it lasts for different people uh, different lengths of time. And during those four months, I heard, uh, go to meetings, read the book, get a sponsor, work the steps. And for some reason, in the back of my mind, I thought those were the things that were going to keep me sober. That reading this book and going to meetings and getting a sponsor and working the steps were what was going to keep me sober. And the awful awakening was that during those four months, I went to more than 90 meetings in 90 days. But during those four months, I heard people that said they went to a lot more meetings than I did, and then they drank again. And I heard a guy who said he read this book day in and day out and found himself reading it one day in a bar 
having a drink. And then I heard a guy who said he got a sponsor and spent a whole lot of time with that sponsor and then went and drank. And then I even heard a couple of guys that said they did the work in the first nine steps and then stopped doing certain things on a daily basis and then went back out and drank. So all my options, all the things I thought were going to keep me sober, I was scared. I was scared. And I uh, kind of filed that away, and I uh, thought I'd worked the first three steps with a, with a man who had come to the treatment center where I was before I got out, and he'd asked me, was I powerless over alcohol? And, you know, my God, I'd been saying that for 30 days like a parrot. And I said, yeah. And I didn't have one idea of why am I powerless over alcohol. And he said, is your life unmanageable? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you believe in God? And I said, yeah. Little did he know I had an old God that was ready to punish me and strike me down at any moment. And we sat in a chair and we read some silly little prayer. And he gave me a mimeograph sheet on how to write inventory. And I went home and I got out and I started going to meetings. And I tried to go through this uh, mimeograph sheet on how to write inventory. And it asked me to make a list of people, institutions, and principles that I was ever angry at. And that was real simple. And then it asked me to put down every reason I was ever mad at those things. And that was real simple. And then it asked me to look in, in my self-centered way at what was affected when I was mad at those things. My self-esteem, my pride, my ambition, personal relations, sex relations. And I could do that. But then it said I was to look at this, what I had written so far from a different angle and look at where I was at fault with every resentment I ever had in my life. Where was I to blame? And I couldn't do that. I could not do that. Physically, I couldn't, I couldn't look at that truth that I'd run from for 30 years. Emotionally, I couldn't do it. Spiritually, I had no idea what that was even about. And I put it down and I stopped writing. And I told him I was writing, and I lied. And I just kept going to meetings. And uh, like I said, I was about four and a half months dry, and I woke up one day, and I said, if, if, if this is what this program is about, I don't want anything to do with it, because I'm miserable. And that really baffles me, because I'm further away from my last drink than I've ever been in 17 years, and I'm worse. I don't feel right. I don't, I don't fit in at these meetings. What's happened for these people isn't happening for me. I'm restless. I'm irritable. I'm discontented, just like the book describes. And instead of going drinking that day, which I was real close to doing, I got on my knees and I said a prayer. And I felt like I was literally directed to go out to this guy's house that I'd heard in my very first meeting. And his story was so much like mine when I first heard it that it scared me. He'd felt the way I did as a kid. He'd been where I'd been and worse. He'd, he'd drank and used drugs a lot longer than me. And he hadn't had to do that for 18 years. He said I could stay sober the rest of my life that night. And that was not an attractive message. You know, when I heard that, you can stay sober for the rest of your life. You don't ever have to drink or drug again. The little guy in the back of my mind said, 
That means feeling the way I feel five days into treatment the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? But he did say that if I was tired of feeling the way I felt, that I never had to feel that way again, and that there's a process in these 12 steps that would change me. That's what I wanted. I went back to my room that night and I realized that's what I've always wanted. Every time I went to a bottle, every time I went to take some drugs, every time I went to a woman, a pile of money, a geographical location, or a new group of people, all I've ever wanted was to be changed from who I was. Because I don't like the way I am when I'm faced with the truth about how I feel and the way I feel inside and how I fit in with this world. And I've always wanted to change. And I, and I wasn't able to pull that off. And I wasn't able to pull that off sober, on my own, sitting around the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went out to his house, and he, I told him where I was at. And I said, I'm really scared because I thought meetings and this book and a sponsor and working these steps were what was going to keep me sober. And uh, I've, I've heard all these people that that didn't work for. And he chuckled. And he said, that's because meetings by themselves and this book by itself. And he certainly couldn't. And these steps by themselves were not what was going to keep me sober. He said, but if you don't go to meetings and don't read this book and don't work these steps with someone that knows how to work these steps and do that, you probably won't find a power that will keep you sober. That made sense. Meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous do not keep me sober. But when I was new, that was all I had. And I thought that going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous meant that I was in the program. I also thought that everybody I saw in AA meetings was there for the same reason, to get well. And I also thought everything I was going to hear in AA meetings was AA. And none of those things were true. Believe it or not, not everybody you're going to see in AA is there to get well. Some people are there for women. Some people are there to get money jobs, get the family back, impress the parole officer, a lot of different reasons. And everything you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous is not AA. And going to meetings by themselves of Alcoholics Anonymous does not mean you're in the program, because there's three parts to this program. And I had a little better understanding of what was going to be required of me to stay sober. And he, st he said he only knew one way to sponsor somebody, and that was to start on the title page and go through the first 164 pages together and do everything it said. And I'm here to tell you, I have never felt the way I felt that day since. Now, every day hasn't been a wonderful bed of roses, but I have never felt alone the way I did when I got to his house that day since. He turned to the title page of this book and just talking about that silly little circle with a triangle that so many of us, including myself, take for granted, the whole program opened up to me. It literally, it literally opened up to me because he talked about that triangle. You know, a lot of people say that the promises are on page 83. 
And there are some great promises on page 83, halfway through the ninth step. But there are also some great promises at each step. And there's a promise on this first page. You know, if somebody came to this program and they absolutely knew that what they suffered from was alcoholism, and you open this book to the title page and you saw the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism, that would give you some hope. And I think anything that gives me hope as an alcoholic is a promise. He started to talk to me about that circle with a triangle. And he asked me, did I know where, where do you find unity? And I said, I knew enough about the program at that time to be dangerous, not only to myself, but to everybody around me. And I said, you find unity in the fellowship. Going to meetings, cleaning ashtrays, picking up chairs going to coffee and dances and conventions, everything we do with people, in a, with people in AA. And he said, are you in that part of the program? And I said, yeah. And he said, what's the only requirement to be a member of that part of the program? And I said, a desire to stop drinking. And he said, right. Page 24 says, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. And you know what dawned on me that day? Having met the only requirement to be a member of the fellowship is not, never has been, and never will be the only requirement for me to stay sober. You see, I think, I think the little guy in the back of my head thought, if I meet the only requirement to be a member, that'll be the only requirement to stay sober. And I saw that my strongest desire lasted about 28 days a couple times. My strongest desire took me out of a parole officer's office, across the street, into a bar with every sufficient reason not to drink, and I picked up a drink, knowing everything that could possibly happen. And I saw that my, the, the only requirement to be a member was not the only requirement to stay sober. And that scared me. But I did see that I'm in that part of the program. I'm in the fellowship. He said, what about recovery? Where do you find that? I said, well, you find it on the wall where they write the 12 steps. He said, well, yeah, they put the 12 steps up there, but where you find recovery is in the first 164 pages of this book. As manifested in the eyes of the people in these rooms and the way they're living their lives who have done this work. You see, the words in this book don't mean a thing if there's not somebody when I got here who's living those promises. The words don't mean a thing. He said, are you in that part of the program? I said, well, I tried to start a fourth step and I couldn't do it and I had to put it down and I, I just couldn't write it. And he said, well, then you're not, you're not in recovery, are you? You're not participating in the recovery program. And I said, no. He said, well, what about service? The other part of that triangle. And he pointed out that it is an equilateral triangle. And it's meant to be done in equal portions. He said, what about service? Carrying the message. I said, well, I'm taking patients to meetings from where I went to treatment. He said, well, then you're carrying the alcoholic to the message. There's a big difference. 
He said, you don't have a message to carry till you've had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And I saw that I wasn't in that part of the program. There's two-thirds of the program I'm not in. He asked me, did I know that there was a set of 12 spiritual principles for each part of the program? That the fellowship uses the 12 traditions? And that the recovery process uses the 12 steps? And that there are also 12 concepts of service laid out in the service manual? And all of a sudden I see a program with three parts and I'm only in one of them and I see a program with 36 spiritual principles rather than just 12. You see, I always heard that the traditions are to the groups and AA as a whole what the steps are to the individual and I didn't think there was anything for me in the traditions or the concepts. I didn't even know what the concepts were. He said, no, there's as many principles to live by and to learn from in the 12 traditions and the 12 concepts as there are in the 12 steps for me as an individual. And I didn't know that. You know, to, just to take one of those traditions, for example, anytime you're dealing with more than one person, like in your family or at business, at work, you take the first tradition. The common welfare of that family comes first. And that personal recovery within that family depends upon the unity of that family. I can use that at home. I can use that at work. For our family's purpose, there's but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. That can work at home, in my business. And all of a sudden I see a program with 36 spiritual principles for me as an individual, as well as for AA as a whole and the groups. He said, did I know that there was a part of the program for each part of my disease? I said, no, but I, I do know that I have a threefold disease. I knew that much. I have a disease of the body, the mind, and the spirit. He said, well, what can you do with the physical part of your disease? And I said, just not drink. If I don't ever drink again, I'll never experience that physical craving again. He said, right, and how many times have we all heard, bring the body and the mind will follow? I said, yeah, I've heard that. He said, well, you bring your body to the fellowship. And a lot of times out here, what the message you hear is just don't drink no matter what. You know, and I think that's ludicrous for a person like me. You know, if I could just not drink no matter what, would I be here? Would I be here in Alcoholics Anonymous? But see, that's the message for my body. If, if I just don't drink, I'll never experience that craving ever again that happens after I take a drink. But see, what about the message for my mind? What about the part of my disease that's going to get me back to the first drink? The obsession of my mind. The thing that's going to tell me this time it'll be different, and all of a sudden I'm reaching over picking up a drink even though every other time it gets me in trouble he said you bring the obsessions of your mind to the recovery process and then having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps you carry your awakened spirit out into the world and into this program to be of service to carry the message and I saw a program 
with a part for each part of my disease. I bring my body to the fellowship, the unity part of the program. I bring my mind to the 12 steps, the obsessions of my mind to be treated through a spiritual awakening. And I take my awakened spirit out into the world and into this program to be of service. And I was at a meeting about a week later at noon at a church. And this meeting is in a room above the chapel and there's windows. And they look out over into the chapel and I could see above the altar these giant stained glass windows with circles and triangles in the middle. And I thought that was kind of neat. And I went to the minister after the meeting. I saw him and I, I said, do you know that's the AA symbol? And he chuckled and he said, yeah, we've, we've had you all here for quite a while. But did I know that it was an ancient spiritual symbol that means body, mind, and spirit? And I said, my goodness, that's what I just looked at with our, with our circle and our triangle. And he talked to me about that the circle means as one. And the great promise in this program is that one day I can be whole and that my body and my mind and my spirit won't be separate. And the fellowship and the recovery process and the service part won't be separate. That they will be as one and that I can be whole. You see, I've always lived in either the cravings of my body, the obsessions of my mind, or the sick emotions that are generated from my sickened spirit, my spiritual malady. And, and all three have never been in harmony. You know, sometimes they drive me out and I'm physically at peace. Sometimes the obsession has been removed or, or delayed and I'm at mental peace and I, got, and I got some physical peace because I'm not craving alcohol. But I've never had that spiritual peace for the root of my disease. And they said that that circle means that I could one day be whole and in harmony as one in the program and in and of myself. And just hearing about that, that circle with the triangle opened this program up to me. We took a look at the table of contents. And you know, and who, who in the world would think that there's anything to learn from a table of contents? You know, that just tells you each chapter, what page it's on. <clears throat> but they began to talk to me about that this is a textbook. You know, not a novel. I knew about reading novels in the, in the penitentiary. I read a lot of novels. A lot of different kinds of books. But they told me that this was a textbook and it was meant to be done in order. You know, I think one of the most dangerous things that we see done in AA is when some new guy comes in and someone tells him, go home and uh, read chapter 5. And you go home and you, you turn to chapter 5 and you, and you try to read how it works and you hear it read in meetings all the time when you're new and it, it just doesn't really make any sense. You know? And I was told a textbook is a book designed to transmit information under the assumption that you and I don't know anything at all about the topic. And if you and I knew anything at all about staying sober, we certainly wouldn't be here. And that maybe I should start with addition and then do subtraction and then multiplication and then division and when I got to chapter 5 on algebra I might know a little bit about how to do algebra and that I should answer all the questions and take all the little quizzes 
at the end of each chapter, just like I would with a textbook. And that maybe when I got to chapter 5, I'd have, a, I'd have a better idea of what they meant. And that the way this book is laid out is real simple. They start with the problem. You know, it only makes sense to me if I have a problem and I go to a doctor that he should find out what the problem is before we treat it. You know, if my problem is with my heart and I go to the doctor and he says, no, it's with your kidneys and they treat my kidneys, but it's really my heart. What happens to my disease? It gets worse. We got to find out what's the problem. And that the problem, you'll be amazed how many people you'll find in this program don't know where step one and two are in this book, if they even use this book. It's easy to know where step three is. It says, now we're at step three. Now we're at step four. Now we're at step five. This is step six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. But it's hard to really tell where step one and two are until somebody showed me how this book is laid out and that we were going to find the problem. Step one, the foundation of recovery, in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. Step one. We were going to find the solution, step two, in we agnostic, the solution. And we were going to find directions on how to find that solution, step three through twelve, in how it works, into action and working with others and they said it was kind of like going to a doctor you know you go to a doctor and the first thing he does is he makes a diagnosis and then he writes out a prescription and then he writes on there directions on how to use that prescription take two every four hours <laughs> well if you're anything like me what you want to do is you want to go home and you want to forget what's wrong with you forget the directions and take ten and they said to me, maybe for the first time in my life I should start with a diagnosis because no one can diagnose your alcoholism. At least when mine was by other people, it didn't mean much to me. Doctors told me, psychiatrists told me, therapists. <clears throat> but until I conceded to my innermost self, it never meant anything. So this was going to be a self-diagnosis. I was going to get the prescription in, in step two. And then I was going to be given directions on how to use that prescription precisely, step by step, in, in 3 through 12. So I started to see the way this book was laid out and that we should start with the problem. The preface told me that this is a textbook. My friends from Arkansas, Joe and Charlie, take it one step further. Rather than a book designed to transmit information, they like to say, and I, and I believe this, that this is a book designed to transmit an experience to enable you to recover. Because it's got to be a little more than knowledge and information. There's got to be, something's got to happen. There's got to be an experience involved in this. And we won't cover the preface and the forewords as much as I would like to, because it's not really where we're at. I think it's, 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 it's time to in this part of the book to look at the problem. But there's a lot of nifty history about the book and a lot of nifty history about how the fellowship grew. But they did tell me that the most important word in that preface was text. Because this book has become the basic text for our society, 
and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery. There exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA re recovery program has been left untouched. That tells me the first part of this book is where the AA recovery program is. Talks about what was left intact, the doctor's opinion, what they put in the second edition, why they added new stories. At the end of that preface on page XII, there is a question that I think is very important. It talks about, we hope you'll pause in reading and ask yourself, has this happened to me? Or more important, have I felt like that? Or most important, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. I think that that's a question that needs to be answered somewhere in the first two steps before we really make a decision and a commitment to this program. I think that's something I needed to answer for myself. Do I believe this program can work for me? The forward to the first edition says that we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experience will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we are sure that our way of living, not our way to quit drinking, our way of living has its advantages for all. Of course, this is a way to quit drinking, but I had to quit drinking first. This is a way to stay stopped and a, and a, way, to, a way of living, a design for living, a manner of life that really works. See, I need more than just take the booze and the drugs away. Because see, then I'm left with all that stuff that goes on when I don't have my, my, my booze, that spiritual malady that I suffer from. The forward to the second edition talks about the growth between 1939 and 1955, that it went from about 100 to over 150,000. They do talk about on the bottom of, of that page, XV, that the spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck in Akron, Ohio in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker, Bill Wilson, and an Akron physician, Dr. Bob. Six months earlier, Bill Wilson had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford grouper that day. That was Ebby, Ebby Thatcher that comes to Bill in, uh, in his story. He'd also been greatly helped by Dr. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism who was accounted no, no less than a medical saint by AA members. From this doctor, the broker learned the grave nature of alcoholism. He couldn't accept all the tenets. There was a group called the Oxford Group, a very, a very fundamental religious group of people that wanted to help drunks at the time. And um, they had a six-step program that's uh, outlined on page 292 in the stories. <clears throat> they had six steps. And uh, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson had been exposed to those six steps. 
and they weren't able to stay sober because they didn't have the, the first step. You see, the first step on that program was complete deflation, but they didn't know what the problem was because the other five steps pretty much sum up everything from R12 except the first step. And that tells me something because it talks about on the bottom of that page back on XVI that the physician, Dr. Dr. Bob, had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but it failed. But when the broker, Bill Wilson, gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the first step, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he'd never been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death. You know, that tells me until they had the problem, the solution didn't work. Until they knew what the problem was, the spiritual solution that they had been given from the Oxford group didn't work for either one of them. That's how important the first step was and is for me. There's some more history in there about the growth of the fellowship. And then the forward to the third edition talks about the growth from 1955 to 1976. And all of a sudden we're at the doctor's opinion. And all of a sudden I understood why this was in front before chapter one and why it's so important. Because I need to discover what's my problem. What's the problem? Am I an alcoholic? Am I really an alcoholic? And they broke the first step down for me in, in, in two parts. The admission of powerlessness over alcohol. And they said we would take that up to the dash. The admission of powerlessness over alcohol, we would take that in two parts. And we would look at why am I powerless over alcohol physically and why am I powerless over alcohol mentally. And that we would take one at a time. You see, I get too scattered when I'm looking at my body and the mind and I'm thinking about step two and I'm worried about the third step and I'm not sure how to if I can write an inventory and I'm worried about making amends. They kept me centered in the work. And they kept me centered on why is Joe powerless over alcohol physically after he puts a drink in his system. They talked to me about the word disease. And I needed a real practical definition that I could look at. And they talked about a disease is a condition that separates me from health. In our case, it's a physical and a mental and a spiritual disease that separates us from health. So what would health be? Health would be physical, mental, and spiritual ease and comfort. So what's my sickness? My sickness is physical, mental, and spiritual dis-ease, discomfort, lack of ease and comfort. Physically, if I put some in my system, I'm craving more, and I don't have physical ease and comfort. Mentally, if there's none in my system at all, and I'm obsessed, I don't have mental ease and comfort. And spiritually, if the spiritual malady hasn't been overcome, I'm restless, irritable, discontented. I don't have spiritual ease and comfort. So I suffer from a condition that separates me from health, physically, mentally, and spiritually. 
dis-ease. Dis-ease, lack of ease. They asked me to use the doctor's opinion as a tool to look at why am I powerless over alcohol physically once I put some in my body and to use every statement as a question. You know, do I relate to the idea of an allergy? No. If I'm allergic to strawberries and every time I eat strawberries, I break out with a rash. They relate this to that I have a physical reaction to alcohol and it, like an allergy, but instead of a rash, I get a craving for more alcohol beyond anything I can bring to mind. Instead of a rash, I get a craving. Do I relate to that? Can I look back through my drinking and see that there were times when I only wanted to drink a little and I drank a little and I couldn't just drink a little? Does that make sense to me? Does that explain things that I, could ne I, I never could explain before? Why did I do what I did the day of my dad's funeral when I told my family and my mother with all my heart and, all my, and really meant it that I wouldn't show up messed up and I drank two beers and that's all I wanted? How come I showed up messed up? It started to explain that question that we've all had for so long. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Page XXIV talks about we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. That's a must. And we, we will look at every must in this book because although there's only one requirement to be a member of the fellowship, there are, there are more than one requirements to be a participant in the recovery process and there are lots of musts. And this is something that I had to believe that my body is quite as abnormal as my mind. They show me how to use these statements as questions for me. Like, did it satisfy me to be told that I couldn't control my drinking just because I was maladjusted to life? You know, how many people told me that? But it never fully answered what was wrong with me. That I was in full flight from reality or that I was just an outright mental defect. These things were true to some extent, in fact to a considerable extent with me, but I am sure that my body was sickened as well. In my belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor was incomplete. I never had a complete picture of why did I do what I did until I started looking at the idea that maybe I don't have a choice after I drink a couple as to how many more I'm going to have. Maybe it's a physical allergic reaction that's stronger than the love for a mother, the threat of getting sent back to the penitentiary, anything. Does the doctor's theory that you have an allergy to alcohol interest you? We're not doctors, so our opinion as to the soundness of that may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that this explanation about the allergy makes good sense. It explains many things that I could not otherwise account. There's a paragraph on the next page that really shows me why it was so important for somebody to sit down and read this book with me and not just read it on my own. Somebody that had experience with it. There's a paragraph on the next page that starts off, We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics. 
but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the power of good that lies outside our synthetic knowledge. And I read that and I don't understand what they're talking about. Until two words were explained to me. And then I read that paragraph and I understand what they mean. They told me that moral psychology was a doctor's way of saying a spiritual experience. And that the powers of good was a doctor's way of saying the power of God. And that every time they used our, O-U-R, they meant doctors. So I read that again. And it makes absolute sense. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of a spiritual experience was of urgent importance to alcoholics. But the application of a spiritual experience presented difficulties beyond a doctor's conception. What were the doctor's ultra-modern standards? A doctor's scientific approach to everything? Doctors are perhaps not well equipped to apply the power of God that lies outside a doctor's synthetic knowledge. I understood what they meant there. That doctors weren't going to be able to fix me. They never were. The next page, probably the most important paragraph where we're at right now, rem reminding ourselves we're looking at the body. We're looking at powerlessness physically after a drink's been taken. That first paragraph says, We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol, when I put alcohol in my body, on these chronic alcoholics, is the manifestation of an allergy. The manifestation of that allergy is a phenomenon of craving, and it's limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Okay? If it never occurs in the average drinker, never, and it's ever occurred in me, I'm not them. I'm not one of them. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Boy, did I, did I relate to that. That's me. And I was told if those bottom six lines are true, the reason is the top part. Because when I put alcohol in my body, something happens that's similar to an allergy, and it makes a craving for more. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, either mine or theirs. The wife yelling, screaming, and crying, the, the, the emotional judge, the, the therapist yelling and screaming in my face, the mother crying, and my own frothy emotional appeal. You know, I was great at building up some great stuff in the morning. Guilt, remorse, what I did the night before to come up with a resolution not to drink that day. Frothy emotional appeal never worked. The message that I better get here in this program, which can interest and hold me, must have depth and weight. There's a must. You better tell me a little bit more than go to meetings, and just don't drink no matter what. There's no depth and weight to that message. Because I can't just go to meetings and not drink no matter what. In nearly all cases, 
Their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. There's another must. But that's also one heck of a promise. Because if I read that the other way, if my ideals are grounded in a power greater than myself, I get to recreate my life. How many of us have said to ourselves, if I could only go back to when I was 20, or if I could only go back to when I was 18, or if I could only start again. The great promise here is that I get to start over. I get to really get to a place in my life where I've cleaned up enough of the wreckage of the past where I can start over with a family, damage that I never thought could possibly be repaired, all kinds of damage I never thought could be repaired, and I get to start over. I get a fresh start. <clears throat> the bottom paragraph on that page is very important. He's, he's going to pinpoint some real things, uh, along with what he's just identified at the top of that page about the allergy and the craving. He tells me why we drink. He says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. You know, did any of us ever drink for any other reason? Because it was a wonderful, lovely thing to do and I just loved the taste so much? No, I drank for the effect. I drank for that, that boom, that, that, that thing that it did. The sensation, though. What, what that booze is going to do to me is so tricky. That feeling that I'm going for. That even after a while, I know it's hurting me. I can't, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. After about my fifth treatment center, and having studied this stuff for a little while, I knew what it was doing to me physically, and mentally, and emotionally. And I knew what it was doing to my family, but that thing that I was going to get from it was so tricky, so strong, so cunning, baffling, and powerful, that it would get me to go for that sensation, even though I knew it was hurting me. See, I can't tell the difference between the truth and the false. What I do with the truth is unbelievable. They call it denial or justification or rationalization, depending on how much you're spending at the time. <clears throat> my sponsor didn't charge me a cent, and he called it lying to myself. I twist the truth. I take the truth in here, and I play with it for five or ten seconds, and by the time it gets down here, it's not the truth anymore. And I can drink on it. Or I can spit it back out at you and it's no longer the truth. To me, my alcoholic life seemed the only normal one. I needed to know that, that by them they didn't mean these people out here, they meant me. Because I knew to them my life didn't seem normal. But to me, it seemed like the only thing I could do. Then they described me. I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. And unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that I used to get by taking drinks, drinks which I see others taking with impunity, take it or leave it, I will succumb to the desire again, I'll take a drink, the phenomenon of craving will develop, and I'll pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This will be repeated over and over, and unless I can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope for my recovery. If I don't find the same things I used to get from booze and drugs, ease and comfort, if I don't find that and more in this recovery process, 
it tells me right there exactly what will happen. And that there's very little hope for my recovery unless I can find that. A couple lines down in the, in the paragraph after the next one, he talks about something more than human power is needed to produce that essential psychic change. So here's a doctor. Here's a doctor who has given us the foundation of recovery, the first step, the physical malady, knew about it, knew what was wrong with us, why we drank, what we have to experience to stay sober, how that's going to come about, gave it a name, an entire psychic change, and then admitted he couldn't do it. He couldn't give it to us. Something more than human power would be needed. That's kind of scary, because this was the number one doctor they could go to at the time who was dealing with alcoholics. On the next page, XXVIII, they describe several kinds of alcoholics. And um, they even say that the, the classification of these different kinds um, is difficult and much too detailed outside the scope of this book and, and really not important. And they describe five or six different types. The psychopath, the, the guy who um, is unwilling to admit he can't take a drink, manic depressive, a type entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. He's often able, intelligent, and friendly. That's the only, that, that was me when I was new until I saw myself in each type. The top of that page, there's another important point where they talk about a guy who things are going his way and a business deal is getting ready to get settled the way he wants it to be favorably. And he takes a drink a day or so before that important engagement. And the phenomenon of craving became paramount to all, to all that stuff that was going on. And that, that important appointment wasn't met. You know, how many of us had times like that? When something really nice was going to happen at the end of the night or the perfect date or the raise or the boss was going to be there and we took a drink before that happened and we wondered you know why didn't I why didn't I make it why didn't I show up it was going to go it was going to be really good these men were not drinking to escape they were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control so they they they, they present me with the idea that maybe this craving is stronger than anything I can bring to mind and that my mind can't stop me after I've taken a little bit of course, there were times that we drank to escape when things were on us and the heat was on. But were there times when we drank when there wasn't really anything terrible to escape? We just did it and lost control. After they look at these different types of alcoholics, they summarize it at the bottom of the page where they talk about all these types and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, is the manifestation of an allergy. The phenomena is the, the, the craving is the result of the allergy, like the rash to strawberries. This phenomena is a, is a manifestation of the allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. My God, that's how I felt all my life. Different, set apart from, like a distinct entity. 
It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Just don't drink. Bring the body. Bring the body to the fellowship. Just don't drink. But see, there were some doctors at the time who knew a little bit more about alcoholism than just dry the guy out and get the craving off his body. Because it says, this immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed because they knew there was a mind. They knew that there was obsessions of the mind. They knew you couldn't just tell an alcoholic to dry out and stop doing what he's doing. I can't just not drink no matter what because I have a mind that's going to get me. So I use the statements, I use the ideas in the doctor's opinion to look at me. Is this me? Does this fit me? Do I relate to the idea of a craving after I put some in my system? My next question was, why is Bill's story chapter one and then they put Dr. Bob way back here? And I was told that they put Bill's story up there in the front because it could be used as a tool for me to look at my life. And that they found at the time when they had these written stories that it was about the best story for anybody to look at to relate to. And that I would learn a very important lesson from this that I could take into meetings when I hear somebody whose story is a lot different from mine. Because they told me to look at Bill's story and look for the similarities not the differences. You see, Bill was a stockbroker and he went to war and he was married and I was none of those things and I want to disregard the whole story. So they told me to take the first eight pages of Bill's story and mark everything that I could relate to. The similarities in three different areas. The way he thought, the way he drank, and the way he felt. I've seen women go through the first eight pages of Bill's story and mark three-fourths of it. It's amazing what I can relate to when I put aside the differences and look for the similarities. And they said I should ask one question. Was I as hopeless as Bill? Not to read the next eight pages of his story about his recovery because I would only compare mine with his. And he went through the first eight steps in one night and it happened in a, in a sudden, spectacular way. But that when I had done what Bill did in the first eight steps, I could go back and look at his recovery and re relate to just as much as I did from his disease. So I was told to look at the first eight pages of Bill's story and then go on to page 17. And when I read the first paragraph on page 17, I absolutely saw why they wanted me to answer that question. Was I as hopeless as Bill? I think we'll stop there for tonight.